to finish my uh, uh, sentence, I was about to say, it's kind of like a scale. And that the scales you can think of, this metaphorical scale is, is that we have been piling on all negative stuff on one side of the scale and piling on positive things on the other side of the scale. But one of the differences is, is that uh, now we're piling on this scale on the side of joy and happiness and wholesome and no longer piling stuff on the side of the scale that's unwholesome, feel bad, selfish, etc. All right. And that over time we keep piling on uh, wholesome, it begins to tip the scales. Yeah. And yeah. that's what you're beginning to experience is, is that the, uh, in fact, just by piling on on the good side, that means the very heavy weighty stuff that was on the other side of the scale actually now is being lightened up. Is beginning to get balanced out. And not only that, but um, let us say that it has the quality of over time rotting away. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we're I'm going to ask a question that relates to that, and it's specifically about memory and, and my personal experience of how over time when you practice, you don't really remember your, your, your events in your life. You start to forget important things that you thought were important, like, oh, this girl that I, I once loved or this birthday or this, it, it seems like they're literally like i was gonna ask i guess i'll ask now like if 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 a person keeps practicing this more and more and it keeps getting more and more um fermented or you know ingrained uh will do they even have a sense of memory and that sense of like rem like dulling like daydreaming back into you know all right um First thing that I wanted to do uh, that I then finished the sentence and then we got off onto it. So I'd like to back up to say uh, again, congratulations that you're making progress, that you're beginning to recognize things that are happening, yeah. things that you ignored for many years. And now you're waking up and um, uh, part of that then is the waking up to say, wait a minute, what I used to think was wholesome is no longer wholesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it, it can be a little bit like a like I said, it's not like it's not um cut and dry as I used to think. Right. Moralism. And, uh there have been statements throughout history, one liners and whatnot that were packed with wisdom that we can use with this. You probably heard the expression, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, that's, I love that. All right, you know exactly what it means, except that um, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, it's behind the eyes of the beholder. I see where you're going. Yeah. And what I say behind it, 
is also in the sense of later in progression of time, though it be only a split second, but that the eye saw the object. Okay, the object of beauty, but I'm using just the plain the object. The eye sees the object and then the past memory systems are used to come up with a perception and that perception then is the beauty that's added to the object that the that the object itself doesn't have any beauty but neither does the eye that sees it that the beauty comes out of the memory base yeah like i've heard that in drawing where it's like imagination is just a memory it's just memory right well, imagination is nothing but rearranged memory. But in fact, invention is nothing but rearranged memory. You like okay, I see. Like you mean inventions in the sense of um, like uh, like creativity. An airplane. How oh, how is that memory? The first, very very first airplane. Where was it? I'm not. I don't. I'm not. It was Amelia Earhart, right? Is that it? Is that the late? No, she's the first lady who flew across the Pacific or something. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you're not going in the right direction. The very, very first airplane was a bird, if you want to think about it that way. I thought about that, but I was like, did, is, this, is that how far this goes in the sense of genetics? If in the sense that? that the human being, the first human that built the first airplane, built something that he had in his imagination was nothing but the memory of bird being rearranged. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. It but cannot be any other way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting and strange because then again like that's where the question because the question lies in the ignorance if there is no ignorance then do you create new memories we reconstruct old memory but what and about that, the, the new moments every moment is like a, a like it can be that, created as that's new input and that new input will then be the next moment's memory Okay. And you have to understand that time itself is fluid in a way that we really don't understand. Oh, yeah. That's a few. I'm going to ask you a question about that, too. <laughs> that, in fact, I think that uh, the humans have gone absolutely gaga ignorant and that the, uh, the ignorance is the clock. And then, then we have other kinds of terms like uh, time is money. Look in the clock. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Time is, that's by the way, a, uh, 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 the, um, the key on a treasure map or something in an old movie. Time is money, look in the clock. <laughs> and the statue of the treasure was in this old clock in the house. But that's the whole idea that we have is, is that our time is worth something, our time is valuable, and in fact, time is not important. Or excuse me, time, the delusion is, is that time is important. And in fact, we could go so far as to say 
that it's the quality of making things important that is the cause of suffering. Um, And that I use it uh, in the sense of importance because um, look at how many things that people were confused about they thought was important and they wind up causing an enormous amount of suffering trying to fix what they thought was wrong. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Okay. Uh, A clear example of that is the issue of right to life versus abortion. The right to lifers uh, hold something really, really important to themselves. Yeah, well. Okay, and and they call it right to life, and that's really, really important. And look how much suffering and damage, and I mean, you can go so far as to say that the, the politics of America is all screwed up. Everyone carrying their own important little idea, using it as a weapon to bash other people. What yeah, I think that's... is important. In, in fact, this is an understanding then, hmm, taking this a little bit further, importance and the thing that gives or, or that the, the quality of importance itself is self itself. Now, let me unpack that for you. What's the most important thing? Depends on what you what you think to you to you. Yeah. Over the years, what's been the most important thing to you? Truth. No, you. You are the most important thing to you. Wow, yeah. Oh, man, you, that's, I never thought about it that way. Because <laughs> I guess it's the adventure that makes it seem so noble when really it's not. The fish in the water does not know that it's in the water until it comes out of the water. Once the fish has landed, now he recognizes where the water comes from or what the water was. That was his home. Okay, so now we're introducing to you the concept that Suffering comes from making things important when, in fact, they don't have any importance other than that which we give them. This is back then to beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Importance is in the mind of the beholder. And that's what's, that's incredible because, you know, like in that sense, you, like, you know, I guess in a in a mind way, you are the creator mm-hmm. of your feelings, at least. Right? Okay, so also then we could say that what's important is what's coming from our past. Yeah. Because that's how we created importance. Well, guess who teaches us importance? A society, of course. Our parents are the first. They yeah. think. They think that little brat's important. So they change his diapers and shove food in his mouth and take it to the doctor. And they try to train up that child in the way he should go because they think that child is important. 
And so that sense of importance is, is given down generation by generation, one after the other. You could also go so far as to start looking at, well, what is original sin? Original sins are the bad habits that the father teaches the son generation after generation after generation. That's literally what the Bible says. Like they literally in the sense of generations, they will pass down their their own like ways. Yeah, I think they only labeled it down to the seventh generation. Yeah, yeah, when it's way longer. But I think they're just trying to make a point that it's going to you. What you do here is going to affect your kids on into the as as far as you can tra trace your lineage. What you do will affect. Yeah. Uh, and and so um, especially if it's not confronted and in society, because we have so many little ideas and things connected that are important, things begin to get really mixed up and confused. But the kinds of things that we're talking about, everybody believes those things. Everybody holds the same things important. And because of that, there's no much, not much conflict about it. And also not a lot of investigation. But in fact, this is what, if you could think of it, is what the spiritual life is all about. Is to, um, let us say, somehow finish off that original sin or get out of the habits that we were taught as childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, there is actually in the Bible a very important uh, story that I actually picked up this story from, guess who, Vicar Buddhadasa, because he was into all the religions. Uh, and that he also um, read the, some Bible without any Christian background, yeah. just reading it as raw text, and also coming from a long history of suttas. And so when he read the story of Adam and Eve, it was fairly easy for him to pick up on exactly what was going on in that story, which is precisely what we're talking about here. So the Christians, when they read the story, because they've been Christianized and take it from a, a point of view of what's important and all of that, like this is the Bible and this is God's word, so this is all about God and, um, and the magic and all of that. Right, and so... They get very much wrapped up in the belief of the story itself rather than the moral of the story. Okay. Now, the story itself has talking snakes and the woman did it. It's all the female's fault. And it was an apple. And uh, God threw us out of paradise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if we look at it, what was it that they actually ate was fruit but in this sense, in, in, in the Pali, it's used often. In the scriptures, it's used often. Even in our language, we use it often. Like fruit of the loom. What is fruit of the loom? Um, I, uh, oh, man. Is that like the ripe fruit? No, the fruit of the loom. Okay, here's an easy one. What is fruit of the loins? 
Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is the fruit of one's labor? Um, their results. All right. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So the fruit of the loom is not just underwear, but fruit of the loom is in fact anything that the loom produces. Okay. Okay. The fruit then is the the fruit of that they ate was then the result of some actions. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the Christians miss the definition of the word fruit. Yeah. Yeah, because we're talking about the fruit of one's actions. Now, what was the action that they had? They well, had they had knowledge of good and evil or good and bad or yes and no or up and down. And that knowledge actually from what Bhikkhu Buddha Das is talking about, this knowledge is actually a knowledge of feeling. Mm, a feeling. Interesting. Yes. The fe- the knowledge of the feeling of I like it means mm-hmm. the feeling of I want it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and if I have the feeling I like it and the feeling of I want it, that means that it I have the feeling also that it must be good, it must be valuable, it must be worthwhile because it's desirable to me. Therefore, it is desirable, period. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other side of that is I don't like it. I don't like it means I don't want it. I don't want it to be around me. I don't want it here. Therefore, the next step is it must be bad. This is the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, it's it's in in that regard, that would be that. That's almost like the the background of our life it's it's the comma machine in that sense that's the that in fact if you think about it then is part of the original sin that we get from our fathers and our parents that they go around judging things as this is important this is not important this is good this is bad and we pick that disease up as a child and that's all rooted in guilt, because that's how I feel about it. All right. That's one of the bad feelings that can come out of this system. Yeah. So the knowledge of good and evil means that we are living in a paradise, but we go around judging that paradise as this part of the paradise I like and that part of the paradise I don't like. Mm-hmm. By taking, like this tree here, I live in a paradise, but this tree here, it's got a leaf. So that means this tree is not perfect. I should dig up this tree and burn it. But if I do that with every tree here, judge that tree as to good or bad based upon some arbitrary criteria, then I'll wind up destroying my paradise. Yeah, and it's almost like a counterintuitive because people always think it's either or. It it can't just be like how it is. It always has to be like this way or that way. Well, in a way, it is in the sense that if you have things good or bad, that's like flipping the switch. Good, bad, good, bad. 
But then there's a higher thing that we're talking about here, and that is, are you going to apply that switch or not? Yes, yeah. I'm going to apply it. No, I'm not. Yes, I do. No, I don't. If we get into the, uh, to the part of I don't apply the switch anymore, then uh, things are just uh, as they are. And so this idea then of beauty is in the mind of the beholder, importance is in the mind of the beholder, good is in the mind of the beholder, and bad is in the mind of the beholder. This is all mind-created stuff. And in that regard, we don't live in the real world. We live in a mentally constructed world that has all of these very subtle... um, uh, qualities added to something, including the idea of important. Because if things are important enough, then they raise to the level of problem. Yeah, yeah, enough to hurt others, you know, like in that sense, like it's important enough to like hurt other people. You know, mm-hmm. it, gets, exactly. it gets to that. If we change our frame of reference from good and bad, important or not important, beautiful or ugly, if we change our frame of reference to dukkha, dukkha naroda, then that change of reference is remarkable because we recognize then that making judgments is often dukkha. It's dissatisfying to go around making judgments. I like this. I don't like that. And, but in a way, that's deeper than just think, verbal thinking. That's like physiological stress, like pressure, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> you see, the human being, through our ignorance, thought that if we went around judging things as good or bad, that we would be able to build a paradise. Yeah. <laughs> but we built instead is cities and technology and jet planes that pollute the air. And in the process of us building our human paradise, we've actually destroyed the paradise that we had in the first place. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's, I mean, it's like it's like when you're telling yourself you got something new and you're saying, I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to break it. And then you drop it and you break it. <laughs> you know, it's like that. Uh-huh. That gives rise to this question. How many items can you carry in one hand without um, dropping one? For me, about two, maybe three, depending on what it is. I would go for zero. If you put one thing in your hand and you go mindfulness uh, out the door, if you forget what you're doing, then you'll drop it. Yes. An interesting thing like that, in fact, is um, take your little pinky finger and put your shoe on it. Yeah, take the pinky finger and hang your shoe so that the shoe is just hanging on by that pinky finger. You're holding up the the back of the shoe, the inside of the shoe. You put your foot in here, and so the heel of the shoe, the top part of it that's up at the ankle, Mm -hmm. the easiest way to hold the shoe with one finger. 
Okay. All right. And, and do that as a meditation and figure out how long you can hold that chew because you will drop it. In fact, uh, that one technique has been used for, uh, for people for meditation or to take a nap or whatever. As soon as the shoe falls, it's time to wake up because you lost your mindfulness when the shoe fell. But won't that physically hurt, like, in the sense of how long can you hold it? Uh-huh. Well, how, <clears throat> see, the thing of it is, is that holding it with the pinky finger is the weakest finger. Shoes are fairly heavy. Mm-hmm. They will, it'll slip off, or uh, the, uh, you see, if you hold the finger up, then the shoe is going to be there, but if the finger relaxes under the weight of the shoe, it's going to fall off. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's a balancing act. It's right. And the question is, can you be mindfulness, mindful to hold that shoe? That's one of the many little games that can be played with our hands, um, opening and closing the hands. But let's go back and talk about something that you originally were referring to, because this is what's all been going around. Um, Rather than working on mindfulness directly for the moment, let's work with, um, or play with, in fact, memory. Okay. Because memory is not what we think it is. Here's a really, really clear example of Over the years, laptops have grown in memory and capacity, most specifically how much data it can hold has to do with how big the hard drive is. So we can have a kind of a loose analogy about uh, human memory. And a lot of human memory is actually stored in the uh, cerebellum. And the cerebellum on the human, which is right, right at the back, right back, right in the back part here. You can see it on the images of uh, YouTube for, for brain and whatnot like that. Uh, this is the source where most memories are stored. And that the memories are stored along with the feelings. So when, when, we, when we record a feeling, we record not something that is, um, let us say, only a piece of the thing, like, for instance, with television. We only have the sound and we only have the uh, the image or the picture. They experimented with smell-o-vision and it didn't work. Yeah. Right, and it never did because they, they, well, it didn't work because they didn't put the money in there. I imagine that they could have um, uh, done something like a 3D image printer that had various uh, uh, chemicals in it that they could actually create synthetic um, molecules that uh, we could um, detect as a particular smell. But that's not the point. The point is, is that when we store a memory, we store only parts of it 
but there is stuff that is stored that you wouldn't think of it as stored. For instance, in television, we store only the image and the sound because that's all the input we get from a TV. However, in, uh, in life situations, we normally are more likely to store special or important things, and the special and the important things have to do with what's special and important to me. So we will remember injuries. We will remember accidents. We will remember when that bully attacked. We will remember uh, uh, when we got chewed out in front of the class. We, re we will remember when we fell down on stage. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things, the things that we find out are remembered to be important to us normally is associated with things that were threatening to the self. That is associated with the self-preservation instinct. So what I'm saying is, is that most memory has not just a visual or a hearing component to it, it'll have a feeling component with it also. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but the worst of it is, is that um, children especially, but even in adults, we don't spend all of our time in suffering and sorrow and, and up, upsetness. We have, in fact, whole industries that can help us come out of our own misery. It's called the entertainment industry. They want to entertain us. Yeah. which means that we get out of ourselves and into whatever they're doing. But we almost always take ourselves into it with us. And so in that regard, then we don't really quite enjoy it. Uh, an example of that is, is that we can't just enjoy a football team or a football game. We have to choose sides. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so that's another one. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Choosing sides is in the eye of the beholder. And the football game is just a football game. Most people don't care about the outcome. In fact, there's one group of people who really, really don't care about the outcome. What they care about is having more games played. And that is the vendors, the stadium owners, the team owners, the team owner doesn't care whether his team wins or loses this game. He cares about the money he makes off the team. And so that's where he's all plotting and everything. He's not there out on the field carrying footballs. He's in some office trying to uh, get advertisements and stuff going. So you see, um, everybody's got their own idea of what's important. Yeah. It, like you said once, like I said, it's all relative, and you were like, no, it's all delusion. <laughs> Which is very true. It's very mm -hmm. true. So, um, in this regard, our memories are selective based upon what we thought in that moment was important, what impressed us, mm -hmm. what really contacted us. All right. And so, um, in the in Petita Samupada, there is that thing called pasa, contact, and that contact 
has a kind of a secondary loop down into the Sankara in the sense that when things impact you, it impacts you enough for it to be remembered. That's part of our memory system. Things that, that impact us very, very lightly that don't cause any feelings at all, we don't tend to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Think about your third grade. The time when you were about eight years old or so. All right. Do you remember the teacher's name? Oh, yeah, I do. I do remember her name. Oh, okay, yeah. let's go for it. Do you remember where in the room you sat? Yeah, to the right. Okay. Do you remember all of the various books that you used in that class, the textbooks? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> okay. Do you remember any of the artwork? Just a map, but that's it. Okay. Do you remember any grades that she, that you got? Any papers that she returned to you? Um, not like by memory. No, I know I got it, but I don't. Re I don't remember okay. like image. Yeah. All right. So while I'm asking you these questions, how do you feel now? You know, not much. Kind of just humor because I remember some funny things, but okay. I guess that's the feeling, right? The feeling of of some humor. Right, that when we bring up, the, when I'm asking you these questions about what happened there, the feelings that you had will also arise. Like when I remember uh, uh, one piece of art that I did, and that I really liked it. And so when I think of that piece of art, I remember feeling really good. Um, I remember in the second grade that I got a, an outstanding on a particular test. For me, that was higher than an A. I guess for the teacher, it was pass or fail. But <laughs> for me, it was an outstanding. <laughs> it's funny because it makes a point because of the reason. The main thing I remember from third grade was that she made a, a girl cry um, because she was yelling at her. And um, she yelled at me. And it was a whole big deal between parents and teacher. And it was it was but out of the whole year. I don't remember anyone's face, but I remember that moment. Ah, so now you're proving what I was telling you about. Yeah. And that is when we become threatened, then that's what we will most likely remember in vivid detail. Yeah, I mean. And, yeah. and then we will play that over and over again, that deeply ingrained memory. And every time we play it, we wind up with those same feelings. Yeah, and then it comes to why me. Oh, this mm -hmm. has always been the case. That's what the mind would say. Uh-huh. But then later we can even forget that episode or not think about that episode, but still the feelings will be there. Mm -hmm. And so this is an important part of feelings is, is that we do store our feelings. We store that because things impact us. Yeah, when it comes to. Um, that's why I would think memory is selective. Memory is selective. It's, it's not like people think where it's like it's a chamber that I can just reach in and grab whatever okay. memory I want. I would say rather than calling it selective, I would call it quantum. Well, why, why, why do you say that? 
Well, you know that uh, the quantum pro uh, properties of light. Mm -hmm. You know the okay. You know that a photon to get kicked out of its orbit has to have a certain amount of energy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So if you've got a really big nucleus, like a, um, a uranium atom, then you're going to have many, many valences of electrons. For one of those electrons in a mid-valence to come up to the higher valence, to come up to a, um, an orbit that's further away, requires energy. It requires so much energy. It requires a packet of energy or a unit of energy, and this is what we mean by quantum. Basically, what we're saying is, even though the whole world appears to be analog, it's actually digital. Right down to the uh, subparticle level. Yeah, it's it's. I know. I, I see what you're saying. All right, and so. Um, Basically, if you have a light beam coming, the power of that light beam does not dissipate over time, that each photon carries the same packet of energy that it left with, except that in space, because we live in a three-dimensional space-time continuum, each one of those photons in that ray are going to become dispersed further and further out in space. That is actually, then how can we gather that light together again is with a large lens, like a telephoto lens, or maybe even on a telescope that can take that diverse inner uh, rays to get a whole bunch of those packets back together and focus it so that you can see a star that you couldn't see with the naked eye because the photons were too far apart to register anywhere that it's actually possible for a star to be so far away that to be able to detect it would require a telescope the size of our entire solar system. Oh my gosh. Why? Because the photons get wow. that separated. They go, they get dispersed That's through space. Really, um, the universe is expanding. And then if you go really back into the universe, there's almost nothing. Well, Let's, got, let's not go theoretical on it. Let's just stay with what we understand about quantums. Okay, okay. Okay, we can also think about a quantum as a, a threshold to a door. In other words, I've got to lift my foot high enough to go into the room because the levels of the floor are different. And if I don't raise my foot high enough, I'm going to trip and fall. If I raise it high enough, it doesn't matter if I raise it too high or not. But I do have to get it up to a certain level to make that next step. Or just coming upstairs. Every stair is a quantum. You can't go to here and get on that stair. You've got to go all the way up. Right? Yeah. Our memories are like that, too. In fact, the whole brain is set up that way. We even in um, neurophysics, we talk about neurons firing. Mm -hmm. That's a quantum. It fires. Yeah, yeah I was about to say they fires. send packets. Yeah. Okay. 
which means that if anything's going to get stored as a memory, it has to have a certain kick to it. It has to have a certain quantum of energy. It has to have a certain force of contact. And if things don't get up to that force of contact, then you won't get it. So an example of that would be that you, um, you're, you're driving in the, uh, the mountains in the car and there's an outlet, a scenic stop place and you come out and you stand there and <clears throat> it it looks nice but you've seen these kind of things before as opposed to you stand there and you get a sense of awe about oh how beautiful this place is and you begin to allow it to contact you the likelihood of you remembering that moment is very high yeah yeah. Okay, so that, that scenic thing, or another one would be a sunset, that we tend to remember sunsets because we tend to get a sense of awe. In other words, it actually, we allow it to impact us. Yeah, yeah. So this is a major quality of memory, is this quantum quality to it, that it's got to get up to a level to contact us. It's even more complicated than that. I bet. <laughs> In the sense that there's a lot of stuff happening that we don't know about. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the sensory said. input the way that the dogs do. Or yeah. a bit of field uh, of flowers can be harvested by bees that we can't get the nectar. Humans can't do it. We'll destroy the field of flowers, but we won't get much nectar, but the bees will get it all. Why? Because they have the ability to see infrared, excuse me, ultraviolet rays. And so the flowers actually change color when they've been harvested. And so the bee doesn't have to look at inside each pistol to see if it's got nectar in it or not. He can look out there and see which flowers need to be harvested yeah because they have a kind of eyesight that we don't have dogs have a smell we don't have there's just so many things that humans do not have the ability to do but what we do have is the ability to invent and one of the things that we have invented is night vision goggles mm -hmm. Okay, so that means that now we have the ability to see at night with these with this technology that we originally didn't have. And then you and I can talk with we were sitting in the same room with each other. But look, now we've got technology and we can be across the world from each other. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing that we've got this kind of technology? But all it does is that it improves our own senses. Yeah. But that's all it does. It just gives us more input with the senses that we have. But like what like that's the whole I mean, maybe this is trailing off, but like on the sense of what why we do these practices is to transform in the sense like our even our chemistry, like our body chemistry, so that our perception that our senses are like more intensified. So that we would feel like you would say, like our proprioceptic nervous system would open up. Precisely. That's because the level of um, attention 
or mindfulness, that investigation itself brings a new intensity that may reach that threshold so that we actually, this, the information records. That's another quantum that we should look at. And that is, is that not only is there a quantum of, uh, of uh, contact that's needed to register this as memory, but there's also a lower level of quantum that is required to have this register at all. In other words, a lot of stuff is uh, subconscious because uh, the way that we um, operate, especially if we favor one sense over all of the others. Yeah, like thinking. Okay, like thinking. All right. So if, if we are not thinking and um, something happens, then we can be there for it. But if we are thinking and something happens, it may be a great big surprise to us. I, this is my favorite story in that regard, is, is that uh, we live on an island. We have really stormy weather from time to time. <laughs> and uh, there was one point when there was lightning. I don't know how close it was. I don't know what it struck, but the lightning was bright enough that everything was brightened up. You couldn't say that all the lightning was over there. You couldn't say it was over there. It was yeah, just yeah. bright everywhere. So it was pretty close by. Immediately, immediately followed by a clap of thunder that everybody in the house came about three feet off the ground. Wow. It was enormous, okay? But the thing that I found so amusing was is that I didn't have a startle reaction for it. <laughs> Everybody else, you're right. They no no startle reaction. Well, I knew that it was happening. You see, I was out on the porch here. Jeez. Everybody else was in the house. I saw the lightning. The immediate following of thunder was a known thing. Well, yeah, but it's like like you have to be mentally there enough to not react to it. Exactly. And that's, Okay, that's really fast. <laughs> that's not normal. <laughs> it's like in the sense of, of like, like, cause, cause sometimes we're like struggling to even like realize that you're walking, you know, like, you know, you're, hey, hello, you're, you know, like, like sometimes we daydream and we'll realize, oh my God, we, I'm, 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 I'm right here, you know. Exactly yeah. so. Um, so we, uh, if we have this lower level of quantum, that means that ordinary things that we used to completely ignore, we now are paying attention to. We're letting them into our field of input. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that the Goenka technique of scanning the body has an enormous benefit. Okay. I'm not sure that the cost was worth it all of those hours of doing the scanning meditation over the course of many, many months. I'm not sure that the cost-benefit ratio was there, but I do have a long-term lingering benefit from that practice. Okay. And that is that I'm alive to the body. 
The body yeah. is alive. I know it. I can feel it. I can feel it almost all over. Yeah. Yeah. It is, and then it's quite sensual. The human body is really, really sensual in the sense that we've got the proprioceptic system. We've got the, the touch. And all the senses become kind of vibrantly alive. But basically, what's going on is that our threshold for that quantum has been lowered because we're not spending a lot of time thinking. So that means that we, we spend much more time in the senses, in our sensory awareness. Oh, yeah. yeah so we, we kind of forget that. In fact, that's what makes childhood really so magnificent, is the child is literally in the body most of the time. And our schools teach us to go out of our body into our head. And I, but it's also like even the body itself, because you know, like when puberty hits, all the hormones and the and then the impulses, um, like in the sense of like the disturbance of emotion in general, like just to have emotion in general. Right. And so when we're having emotions, we don't pay attention to them. Yeah. That in fact, a lot of what these. Um, bodily chemistry changes are all about it's an informational system mm -hmm. and that when we're doing a lot of thinking and not paying attention to the body that means that we're basically not tuned into the right channel and so we're going to miss things this would be possibly one of the reasons for the cause of cancer is that people are not aware of what they're doing uh, other things would be, um, say when the child is little, we spend a lot of time in the body. We frolic, we play, we dance, we're all over the place. But when we get into school, we get more and more into the head, into knowledgeable stuff. And then, uh, we're not paying attention to the body. So, when things like anxiety come, the question is, at what level does that anxiety have to get up to before we'll, we're willing to recognize it? That's the funny part, because it's inseparable from your experience. So if you're not recognizing it, it only will hurt more. Exactly so which this is where then Petitia Samupada really starts to come into play when we understand that all this anxiety that's building up is building up and that is going to have to reach a certain quantum before it gets my attention and that it's actually possible for it to stay under my level of awareness and still direct my behavior. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly like if it's like people say, if you're in a, if you've ever been to church, you, you'll always hear the question, "How far is too far?" <laughs> Which is it's a sign of of the total unconsciousness of a human. Like we can be so unconscious of our own like suffering that we're willing to like go to the threshold of what even it like you know like we love suffering, <laughs> like in the sense where we're almost deluded into like a sense of gratitude or or like gratuitousness for it 
that's really delusional when we when we think that there is some advantage to suffering. Well, that's that's our problem all the time in the sense of like whenever we break, let's just say in the not in a moralistic sense, but this is the only way I can term it. Whenever you kind of fall out of right view, it's like, well, that's why because you're you're in your sensuality in the sense of greed. Mm hmm. Like, That's yeah. right. So, um, we not aware of that anxiety, we will go around doing things. But when we become um, aware to it, let us say through Anapanasati, that we start noticing the body. We start watching what happens to the body when we're breathing. Breathing deep, that in fact, the deep breathing is one of the things that will help people to see the anxiety that was already there that they weren't seeing before. That normally what we work with is we work first with the thoughts and then with the feelings. But very quickly, those feelings will become manifest because we're actually paying attention to the body and the body and the feelings work together. Because that's where all the chemistry goes on. The adrenaline and all of that kind of blood chemistry changes. All kinds of things happen in the body that we're not aware of. Until we start paying attention intentionally. And when we do, now we can see that anxiety. We can begin to play with it as a toy. To recognize that the anxiety, first off, it too is temporary. It, too, arises and comes down, up and down, and that if we allow it to be there, it will uh, influence our, our behavior. That, in fact, all of this anxiety is part of the past sankaras that influence uh, our perception so that uh, the internal image that we make that doesn't have any anxiety in it. Let's just say that you're looking, um, that you're standing um, on a precipice, or let us just say in a tall building, Empire State Building. Empire State Building. But in the old days, all they had was a guardrail. Okay. But that guardrail is enough to um, protect one. And then unless one someone really wants to get over the guardrail, now they've got glass up, <laughs> so that you can't. But in the old days, they had a guardrail. People would go up to that guardrail and look down. When you stand on that guard, stand at that guardrail and look down, what happens? This uh, well, for me, I get these this like electric feeling of like oh. oh. <laughs> All right, but what is that? Is that also coming with the imagination of going over the side? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, like the fear fall. Well, guess what? That guardrail in that tall building did not have this you going over the side. That was all mentally done, including the consciousness and the anxiety and all of that. And some people have tingly feet. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get like, uh, kind of like a rush, like, whoa, oh, oh my God. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Well, some people really, really like that. That's why yeah. we have skydiving and bungee jumping and that kind yeah. of thing. That's what but I want to try. The point is, is that you imagine going over the side. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. mentally constructing that. And then that's what you're responding to is the mentally construction that you have done that in fact you don't and you didn't have any intention to actually go over the side yeah it's like just anxiety for just the sake of the possibility of falling mm-hmm. which is kind of like not not useful <laughs> it's not it's yeah. not at all especially when we also not only do we imagine the falling when we're standing at that ledge or at that guardrail, many times we go around imagining the guardrail and the tall building and the precipice, and then we imagine going over the side. All of it is mentally constructed. And then it doesn't have to even be a guardrail. Now we can imagine something else and have that same feeling of anxiety. In in fact, we don't even know sometimes what it is that we imagine that kicks off the anxiety. Sometimes, in fact, it takes very little or nothing at all in in the form of thought that will kick off anxiety, especially when there are many, so many people in the West who are actually in the habit of feeling anxious yeah yeah it's 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 almost like just to think of going to school will create anxiety in many people yeah yeah and and and, uh i wouldn't say rightly so because they don't know better you know i wouldn't say this is what anapanasati is all about is is that we can do a complete investigation and the outcome of that investigation is we know a lot better yeah exactly and and you can't blame people for not knowing because you know in the sense like you can't started out that way we all were raised in this this culture this original sin yeah, because I, I used to have a, well, I still sometimes do, like, have a real big anger issue towards society in the sense of, like, who cares about it? Like, you know, as a young person, it's like society is the enemy of life. and It is, and absolutely. But the but problem like in, is, is that yeah. when you, you have to understand the distinction between the society mm-hmm. and the people in the society. Because often when we hate the society, we wind up hating individuals who were caught in that society just like we are. Yeah, and that's the whole um, thing. Believe me, like in, for some people, it's really hard to have compassion for Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean. And look how you know. he is just stuck into it. I know, it's almost like unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> It's truly unbelievable. I mean, it's like a, it's like, but I I can't say that because I can look back at myself and think, whoa, unbelievable. You know, I was so unbelievable, you know, whatever that means, because anyone can do anything. (laughs) Right, because of our own mentally constructed stuff and the way that it impacts us and that um, 
the mentally constructed stuff that we construct now is also then going to be the basis for next time when we mentally construct stuff. And this is why it's a habit. But not only that, but it tends to get worse. Yeah. It tends to build up. It tends to have things that are important become more important and more important. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of the existential crisis. Right, exactly. To where there's no existential. So why have a crisis over it? Because, because that's the whole thing. It's like you were taught for the, the unimportant. There's supposed to be an existential. But the existential is that there is none. <laughs> yeah, because the really existential is there's no existential. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly the, the yeah. And spending all of our time thinking that truth was important. Yeah, and and well, exactly, and that's another thing. It's like, and I'm talking about it with a capital T now. Yeah, because that's if because for me it's like, um, like in my life it was like. I wouldn't say it was the worst, but like, you know, some people really enjoy life. Like they like to be social and in the sense of like, you know, like they like to really, you know, do everything. Like I at an early age was like very like, no, I just I'm already done with this crap. Like this is too much for me. And and then it, but the last thing that was left was the truth, because that's what you know how they say in India. If, if you can't get a job, just be a sadhu, <laughs> like in the sense of like. We've got something like that in the West, too. If you can't, uh, those who can't teach, those who can do, and those who can't teach. You've heard that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny. It's also also like, uh, again, ups um, backwards. Precisely. That's exactly right. All right. So... um, What we begin to do then is we recognize that this quality of importance, if if nothing is important, then that means that there's nothing to do. The the whole quality of importance is, is that it needs care. It needs fixing. But when nothing is important anymore, then you can just relax. We take the, the heat, take it off the heat, take the power out from under it. Yeah. And how and we that, do that lowering the heat is by bringing up our awareness. So when sati is there, when mindfulness is there, when investigation is there, we can see things before they get big enough and hot enough, or let us say, uh, it's kind of like a light bulb turn, turning up. If you've already got uh five or six lights in your room already burning then one more light turning on is not going to register so the more lights you turn off and in fact you've got it down to there's no lights in the room and now you turn one on boy do you know it yeah and so that main light though that we need to turn to dim down is the one about the thinking that is basically all about here now is also the way of getting out of the head 
into the reality of the moment. To be here now means to be in your sensual awareness. That's how we experience the here now. How do we experience the past and the future is through constructed memory in the head. And that's uh, that's so against the Western mindset of like, you have to go through these psychological barriers first. You know, and that's the, the psychological like, barriers are not. <laughs> we we fall actually Buddhists fall into the trap of deeply buried psychological things, right? Mm-hmm. Even yeah. even when we look at the idea of the fetters as opposed to the hindrances, mm-hmm. we recognize it from that. Except that we never do really have to deal with the deep stuff. The only thing that we need to do is to deal with the hindrances. Imagine it's like this, that there is a plant, a weed, a really gross, undesirable weed. But we can't uproot it. But we can cut it off when it starts to grow. So as soon as it starts to grow, as soon as it gets above ground, in other words, as soon as the underlying fetter of uh, fear manifests itself in the moment as anxiety, we can cut that off. If we keep cutting it off, if we cut that plant off every time it shows a leaf, you cut every leaf off over and over and over again, guess what's going to happen to the roots? Yeah, it's... it's uh... You know, they'll die. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so if we've got a whole park full of leaves that need to be trimmed, we've got quite a job. But if we can sit down and start looking at one leaf at a time that grows in the mind and we can cut that off and cut that off and keep cutting it off, then we don't have to worry about all of those leaves on all of those plants. We only need to worry about and in fact, worry is not the, the word to use anymore. So people think about, oh, all of these leaves on all of these weeds and in my mind, and it's just so much, and it's all so important and everything. Wrong attitude. That's the attitude of the loser. The attitude of the winner is that when, if you grow, I'm going to cut you off. Yeah, because as I, as I, like, over the years, I always wondered, like, man, am I just creating issues? <laughs> you know, like now I know I am, but like when now when you back, know it, <laughs> yeah, like back then, like when I was like you know quote unquote like depressed and all these different issues, it's like now like if that was really who I was, then why don't I feel that now? You know, and that's very obvious in the sense of like, <laughs> but but it's like. Yeah, like you say, that's the world we live in and the one that makes contact with us. So, you know. Well, you can see that the reason that you created the issues was because you saw things important. Oh, yeah. Now you recognize that that wasn't important at all. There was nothing to that. Which is. I guess like the hardest part about it, I guess, for me, if there was a difficulty is like spiritual like highlights like wow this is what made me get into meditation remember remember that moment like make sure you remember that because <laughs> that's the most intense one and like and, and in a sense like now i don't 
like do it as much, but I used to do like that was my drive for my practice to get to that moment again to see that you know like whatever I saw or whatever you want to call it in that sense like uh whatever experience. But over time, it's like the more experience, the more you it starts to become a burden. <laughs> right. Um, all of those things that we created back then, um, those issues that we were talking about, was because we thought something was important. And, and the answer is, yes, there was something important. Me. All of those issues that everybody creates has to do with self-preservation or the self. I'm important here, and I've got to make plans so that everything works out for me. So when we actually mature in the Dhamma, we wind up having, it's the Dhamma that's important, or it's the um, Dukkha Dukkha Naroda quality that's important. To be, to be out of suffering, which means to be out of selfishness. So we change the, the point of importance. We wind up with only one thing that's important, or only one rule to keep. And the best part of then is, is that if I'm not important anymore, then that means that I can now be of value to others. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole funny part about it. It's a whole a big joke. <laughs> like uh -huh. it's all big. It's all upside down in the sense like you thought by attention to you, you had value. But mm -hmm. no. Nope. But the individual has no value. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the warlords and the genocidal maniacs are all correct in one point, And that is, is that <laughs> it's OK if all those people die. That's in fact what the Trump administration is talking about is, is that. Uh, and um, uh, also big industry, like uh, Charles Koch has been um, accused of. Well, let the coronavirus kill all of those old people. Why should we have to take care of them? Social Security, let them die, and the economy will be better. Okay, so what they're actually pointing to is... Uh, each individual person there is not really important. Well, especially not to Charles Koch. They're not important to him. But what he's failing to understand is, is that those people that he would like to have die from coronavirus do see themselves as important and that they will suffer greatly when they find their own uh, illness. Not only that, but the family members think that that person who is sick with coronavirus is important. And they'll go through the grieving process. But if you have a, a mature relationship, say with your mom, a really mature relationship, and you can see where she is, you know what's happening, and when she dies, she, it's not important anymore. Yeah, and she died. Yeah, well, that's true, right? Like, I've said that to people before, and they're and they're not just about my mom, but just about everybody. Like, in the sense of like, it's not pessimistic. It's only pessimistic if you think it's important, if you value it. Exactly. Like, it's like 
but it's like i think people again it's like that really deep belief in unconditional love that really because if you don't love if you don't think it's important you're cold-hearted you're a bitter you're you're a demon basically you know yours yours you know things like that all the names again it's all upside down Mm -hmm. uh you you used it correctly when you talked about love being important. That you is you should love people, right? That's I the way should. that the Christians teach it. Yeah, I insist that you love people. Well, if you look at the way that love works, or the way that is used commonly, it has to do with greed, not uh, and selfishness. So the loved object becomes important because it's important to me. So if the young man wants to marry the girl, he says, won't you be mine or won't you marry me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Be my girlfriend. Be mine. That's the whole idea of um, desire. Girls want to be desirable and then they don't like it when <laughs> they're desired by the wrong guy. But. The whole idea then is I'm important, I'm important, and love becomes part of that importance. However, when we drop the importance and drop selfishness, we become altruistic. We recognize, look at how much suffering these people have with all of their important ideas. Let's see if we can help them understand things better with the Dhamma so that they don't do so much suffering with all of this importance. And so that's where real compassion comes in. But we don't do it in the sense of thou shalt not, but rather in in making more rules, but rather in the sense of um, lighten up, enjoy yourself. Look at what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. uh, And so love becomes backwards that in fact, love creates and causes suffering. That's the whole because in that sense you can't you will end up seeing that this person is not fulfilling you eventually. I mean, like in that sense of like what you thought to be fulfillment, like in the sense of love or whatever, or some idealized version of love filled, fueled by, you know, desire, by libido or whatever Freudian term. (laughs) The libido, Uh the impulse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and but I mean I learned that too when I first got into a relationship and then I, I it took a while to like get over it but like like I realized eventually that oh my god it was just love didn't exist because of her it was I just loved her like I did I did mm-hmm. that's why I say it like that I did <laughs> love her you know, that's <laughs> And you loved her and you didn't get what you wanted from her. And so that love was suffering. It was suffering when you loved her and it was suffering to get over the love. Yeah. And that was like a big, a big step in my understanding of like, well, what is happiness then if that's not it? Because that's like the ultimate hype of this culture is like the relationship. Really is. Well, that's because it can be exploited for business. Yep, pretty much. I mean, and it is a, what are their choices? They're either going to do nothing more than sell, uh, sell a few rugs and a few Zen cushions. It's about the best they're going to do. Maybe a book or two. 
Or on the other side, they can sell cosmetics, they can sell furniture, they can sell clothing, they can sell shoes, they can sell um, uh, medical procedures. Yeah, and, and this is all fueled by... They can sell sports, they can sell sports equipment, they can sell train out diets. Look at the industries that are associated with uh, love. Yeah, because love is forever, right? <laughs> Just like karma. Well, here comes the gears. They wanted what are they going to do with all those diamonds they were digging up out of South America, or excuse me, South Africa, and then they came on to that. That was a back, very, very big sales pitch back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Diamond rings did not exist in 1920. And now listen to all the songs and all of that music and all of that kind of stuff. Diamonds are forever. No, they're just rocks, hard rocks. Yeah, it's and, it's it, and, yeah. And it, what makes them expensive is because they're sold in jewelry stores and they have been attached to the word love. Yeah, yeah, wedding rings and all. A yeah. wedding ring, a diamond ring, exactly. It's Diamond so <laughs> I just I never understood none of that as a young kid. I always did. I always like just saw it as a big act. Like just it's it's kids a show. Can see it. That's the whole yeah. point. Is the kids can see this ridiculousness <laughs> that the adults are doing, and then we get eventually conned into it. We get yeah. propaganda propagandized into believing it all. Wow, thank God for stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> you know. For real, because I did not get yeah. in. In a way, all of these years that I've been learning the Dhamma, when I get down to it and fully understand it and really take great joy in it, I can reflect upon, but I knew all of that when I was three years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that like, the Dhamma is actually an unlearning process so that we can get back to our childhood and enjoy yeah. our life. That's that's it's like funny because that's like usually put into as a metaphorical story. Like that's your spirit. No, that is the journey. That is literally the process. Like it is that it's not just like a feel good, like you you know, that's that's how it is. No, that's literally what you're doing. You're resetting, you're refreshing. Mm -hmm clicking the reset well they talk about it as a joke about the old old people who are, are in their what they call second childhood uh, yeah yeah but those are the ones who finally woke up yeah yeah if yeah <laughs> <I know laughs> they finally woke up hey i don't have to be an old man anymore and follow along what culture and society wants i can go back and be a child again well, I mean, I wish, but most people don't do that. Most people kind of stay in the, it's like anything but talking about basically your real life, anything but that, anything but that, please. Like, that's the attitude that most people have. They get wrapped up in the rules. You got to do this in order to get that. You got to do this in order to get that. That old law of karma. Yeah, if and you do good, you'll get good results. If you do bad, you'll get bad results. And the Buddha was the only one that could see that that's only true 
in the cause-effect relationship. If you do something good now, you'll get the benefit immediately. If you do bad, you'll get the benefit of that immediately. Yeah, and then the effect of now, here, and now. Like right now, what I'm doing. But our whole society has lied to us. They said, learn your ABCs and you'll be better off. You'll get a reward. Learn your alphabet. Learn to read. Learn your one, two, threes, and you'll get the reward. You know what the reward is? Another year of school. And what's the reward for that? A graduation? (laughs) It's crazy because everybody, again, at the graduation, at my graduation, no kid thought it was important. It was just for the parents, you know? Like, hey, you know, like, let's give them a show here. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Right. Exactly. The kids, they can see. They recognize. What's the point of all of this? It's the parents that have dropped into the, the delusion that the almighty dollar is, in fact, what is almighty. Yeah, but if you admit, see, that's the thing, like, maybe, I think you know this because you lived in Western society for a while, but, like, it's almost a sin to admit that because then you're selfish and being selfish is wrong instead of just misunderstanding. Like, it's just misunderstanding. It's not, you're not wrong. No one's wrong for feeling. Right and wrong, good and bad, rather than look at what you're doing. (laughs) Exactly. They get caught back into that, uh, the fruit of um, uh, judging. And so they destroy their own paradise. And so they decide that, hey, you can't have a paradise. You've got to destroy yours like we did ours, because that justifies that we did the right thing by destroying our paradise. Yeah, and it's it because and then as a kid, I did the uh, like I took it on myself to if if you're gonna destroy me, I'm gonna destroy myself. That was my attitude because I thought like I, I like you know I'll have the last word <laughs> in that sense. Like, uh, Still, the self is so important. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it you know it's uh it's weird because I guess since now we can like I kind of want to ask another question that might be appropriate or not and if you want to answer you could or not um well we're getting a a little long in the uh hour now and um why don't we let that question wait for next time but give us a a a prelude what's the question and we'll do it next time i think it was kind of like uh a a kind of fun question it wasn't really like super serious all those are the best kind (laughs) i mean in the sense of fun because i'm serious it must be important (laughs) like i just kind of had this experience my whole life like uh, as uh, from young kid to uh to adult now um uh and i kind of asked different spiritual circles like what is this like and i never really got a satisfying answer and i think it happens to everybody um and it does on some level they call it deja vu and I'm, I'm bringing this up because you talked about causality and things like that. And I, and I was like, kind of, like, for me, though, I dream up the future. Like, I hate to say it this way, but this is how I, I the only way I could explain what happens is like, I'll dream the future. And then when the moment arises in, in real time, I'll be like, oh, my God, I dreamed this and I'll remember it in real time. I won't remember it when I dreamed it. Like, I won't know the, the day I wake up. But I'll know I dreamed it in in dream in my dreams, mm-hmm. and 
some people call it deja vu because people get feelings. I get the image, the flashback, the memory, literally a vivid image of like, I dreamed this. I was dreaming this. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, let's answer that question next time. It took quite a while just to get it straight and it's going to take a while to talk about it. But in a way, we already have been. We're talking about constructed memory. Yes, exactly. But, but that's okay. the future. I mean, you know, in the sense of future, that's the future. You know. All right. So when the event actually happens, then it's not necessarily a big deal. Mm-hmm. But what are important, but what is important is that sense or that feeling of recognition in a surprising kind of way. Because I've had deja vu experiences. And when I tried to work with them, I tried to keep the reality of this moment in line with my deja vu. Okay. Recognizing that it didn't. Reality wouldn't keep going the way that I wanted to construct it. You're touching on something that that's my experience as well. Is that it gave me anxiety as a, as a young child because I was like, oh my God, like, is this the future? What is the future? Like, I don't. Ah, like but you're missing the point because what we nearly need to look at at that time, and I'm kind of giving away next week's lecture, <laughs> and that is look at how you feel when you're having that experience because that's the real issue. That, that we know from physics that, that time does not loop. We know from causality and cause effect that this is not what we know to be a deja vu, it's the experience and the feeling of it being done before. But if we keep inspecting, we'll recognize it. You don't know for sure. We're talking about when you experience it and you say, I'm having a deja vu. And that's when I get the memory of like... A lot of people want to go back to when did this happen before? Was it in a dream or whatever? And what I'm saying is, no, we need to stay in this present moment for it. But we'll talk about this next time. This is going to take a while to uh, uh, to talk through. Awesome. Uh, but it has more to do with the feeling that we have that this has all happened before. Okay. 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 That's what it is. It's a, it's a feeling that has to be investigated, experienced, because it's actually quite awesome it's an awesome experience i can't wait because i've always wondered i've never known what to do with this um experience that keeps happening to me look closely that's the easy answer and we'll talk about it (laughs) i'll look closely i'll look for coming attractions yeah call me again this is getting a little long in the tooth and so we'll finish this one now and we'll talk next time today we've covered importance who's important who's important no one (laughs) nobody home (laughs) we'll see you